It's time for the Tom Sumner Program. The Tom Sumner Program is a live variety show with music, comedy and special guest interviews every Monday through Friday. The Tom Sumner Program. Old-fashioned radio for a new generation. Theme music is Fruit of the Louvre, provided by Flint composer-producer Howard Eddy. Stay tuned, because it's on now. Old-fashioned radio for a new generation. The Tom Sumner Program. Here's your host. Have you lost your job and your health care coverage due to COVID-19? You're not alone, and Genesee Health Plan can help. I called, and they provided health care enrollment over the phone with Medicaid, HealthCare.gov, and Genesee Health Plan. They made sure I had access to doctor visits, my prescriptions, and more. Getting health care coverage can be confusing. You don't have to do it alone. Get help with GHP. Call 844-232-7740 or go to GeneseeHealthPlan.org. We're in this together, and together we'll get through it. Hi, I'm U.S. Senator Debbie Stabenow, and I'm listening to the Tom Sumner Show. Hey, good morning, everybody. Welcome to the show. I'm Tom Sumner, and we got a packed one today with three authors. So we're going to get underway uh, here right away with author Catherine Stewart. And then uh, stay with us. we got lots more coming up. So here is uh, my interview with Catherine Stewart. Hey, welcome back, everybody. This is the Tom Sumner Program. My guest this hour is um, one of the leading authorities on the political aspects of the religious right. She is the author of the Good News Club. She contributes to the New York Times, American Prospect, Washington Post, and many other publications. She has a new book called The Power Worshippers, Inside the Dangerous Rise of Religious Nationalism. Her name is Catherine Stewart. She joins me by phone. Catherine, welcome to the show. Great to be here, Tom. Thanks so much for having me. Um, I want to talk about this uh, dangerous rise of religious nationalism. Uh, First of all, what is religious nationalism, and how does it compare to what I remember as the moral majority from the uh, Reagan era? These are great questions. So first we'll talk about the definition, then we'll talk about what's changed. Christian nationalism is a political ideology that ties the idea of America to certain religious and cultural identities. The ideology is anti-democratic because it says that the foundation of legitimate government in the United States is a particular religion, and it insists that that's what makes us distinctive rather than our democratic system of governance or our constitution or our long, if imperfect, history of assimilating very diverse people in a pluralist society. And uh, religious nationalism is also a device for mobilizing and often manipulating a large subsection of the public. So when you look to other countries and you see uh, leaders like Viktor Orban or uh, Vladimir Putin or Erdogan binding themselves very closely to religious conservatives in those countries in order to consolidate a more authoritarian form of power, we rightly recognize that as a form of religious nationalism. 
And that's what we're seeing with Trump's alliances with hyper-conservative religious leaders uh, today. Now, how has this changed since uh, the days of the moral majority? I mean, let's start with the 2016 election. Trump got elected by, by making a deal with this cohort, and as a result, he won a higher share of their vote than any of his Republican predecessors. In, say, the Bush era, um, Christian nationalists used to be just one part of a relatively diverse Republican coalition, and the controlling powers tended to try to please them with mere words, promising things like we're going to limit abortion and the like or defend uh, the traditional family. But today, they're the single most important element of the Trump Republican Party, and they're collecting more than just words from their leaders. In fact, Trump is always boasting of all that he's delivering to them. Um, He's always saying, I've given you everything you asked for and more. And uh, they're asking for more than a seat at the table. They want to overturn the, uh, you know, smash the table altogether and replace it with something different. They're demanding a license to discriminate against people who are different from themselves. Uh, Basically, the ability to uh, withdraw from the law when it offends their religious principles and thus also withdraw from the sort of social contract that uh, applies to everybody else in society. And I think it's also important to note that what's distinctive about this current phase of religious nationalism is the near-perfect alignment of this form of nationalism with a single political party. So even though the movement over time has set itself in opposition to both religious liberalism and political liberalism, it's never enjoyed the type of power that it that it enjoys today when you talk about the the dangerous rise um it it presupposes that there's an end somewhere on the horizon um is is this going does this have the potential of going back in time to the the days when there was a like in England when there was a religious leader along with the monarch um or as we see in some uh, middle eastern countries there's a president then there's an ayatollah um I, I, are we headed in that direction I don't think so I mean the there's no sort of central command and control for this movement um there, the movement is made up of a number of different organizations and leaders. Um, they spent decades spending hundreds of millions of dollars building an infrastructure of legal advocacy organizations, uh, think tanks, political campaign infrastructure, data organizations. Um, they've also transformed many of America's conservative churches into what is essentially partisan political and I think we should talk more about that later. But um, it's not uh, like a sort of centrally organized uh, movement. It's got a lot of different pieces. That said, my book does sort of pull back the curtain on many of the leading personalities of the movement, many of the most intriguing personalities of the movement, along with the inner workings of a lot of the advocacy organizations that um, comprise it. Machinery. Your book um, pulls from interviews and and uh, meetings that you've attended and research that you've done over a decade. Um, That's right. 
was it always with the book in mind and and whether it was or wasn't were you um what got you interested in this particular direction like first got interested in the topic in 2009 when a good news club came to my kid's public elementary school. I was living in Santa Barbara, California. Good news clubs are designed to convert children in their earliest years of learning, kids in the kindergarten, first, second, third grade, into a deeply fundamentalist form of evangelical Christianity. And they because they're in public schools, they confuse little kids into thinking their public school endorses this form of religion. The Good News Clubs that I attended, and I attended dozens all across the country, they encouraged children attending the clubs to proselytize and recruit their classmates. So I was astonished to learn that there were thousands of these clubs operating in public schools nationwide. And to me, they seemed wildly inappropriate in a diverse public school setting. Look, I mean, if we're our public schools are to function effectively in a diverse society. They need to be welcoming for all families. But at first, I, I really also thought they were kind of relic of the American past, and I was really wrong about that. <laughs> so I, I learned more about these clubs and the movement behind them and decided to publish a book about them and the movement they represented, and that came out in 2012. That was my first book on this topic called The Good News Club. Uh, and over the years, I just kept digging deeper uh, I just kind of couldn't look away from this um, feature of uh, our society. I was stunned by the movement's legal sophistication, its de- determination, its coherence, and the fact that it was operating largely under the radar of many uh, moderates and progressives in our society. So, you know, I had to conclude at the end that the Good News Clubs, as much as they were just a a part of a larger attack on public ed. The attack on public education was really just one part of a larger attack on America as a modern constitutional republic. With the um, in your in your book, you talk about uh, leaders versus uh, followers, and is there a significant difference between the goals of the leaders and the followers? Absolutely. I think a lot of the people attending America's churches, uh, conservative churches, I'm sorry, would not think of themselves as members of this movement, but they have, uh, in many instances, surrendered their political will to their uh, religious leaders who direct them how to vote. So I do think it's helpful in understanding the movement to uh, distinguish between leaders and followers. This is a leader-driven movement. Now, the foot soldiers may believe often that they're fighting for things like traditional marriage or a ban on abortion. Um, but over time, the movement's strategists have reframed these culture war issues to capture and control the votes of a large subsection of the American public. They understand that if you can get people to vote on a couple of issues, you can get their vote. And so they use these issues to direct political power for themselves and their allies. Um, and increase also the flow of public and private money in their direction. Um, I'll just give you an example of this. I went to this one, uh, multiple pastors. It was in Southern California, 
and it was held at a mega church. And these pastors, you know, the movement leaders know that if you can control how pastors, what kind of messages they're giving to their congregations, you can get those pastors to turn their congregants to vote in a certain way. So at this particular event, which was held in a, a not wealthy area, so you're Many of the pastors are working with congregations, you know, where people are sort of financially struggling or, you know, maybe they've got jobs, but they're not making a ton of money. So when the, uh, the, the, the leaders of the event told the pastors, he said, when you're talking to your congregations about, you know, financial issues, what's more important, talking about the minimum wage or talking about life? So meaning abortion. So if you put it that way, you know, what's a few extra dollars? versus life itself um and the pastors you could see they were sort of like nodding like wow i never thought of it that way and they uh leaders of this event were also offering pastors tools that they could use to convey these issues to their congregations like voter guides or videos or things like that things of that nature they're giving them talking points Exactly. They were giving them very, very clear talking points. Uh, they were directing pastors to encourage their congregants to vote biblical values, what they call biblical values, of course. Um, I think most American Christians actually think that uh, their religion has to do with something with caring for the poor and supporting the undefended and the vulnerable. But uh, this movement has kind of embraced an incredibly uh, distinct interpretation of the religion that emphasizes that boils down at the end of the day to these positions in the culture wars. Who, who are some of the leaders of this uh, uh, movement? And are, are they people that we know or are they somewhat in the shadows? Uh, some of them are people that we know if you pay attention to this kind of uh, movement, like folks like Tony Perkins, the head of the Family Research Council, is somebody who I profiled in my book, Ralph Drollinger, uh, who's the head of an organization called Capital Ministries. He uh, targets uh, political leadership with his ministry. He's taught a Bible study to at least 11 out of 15 members of Trump's cabinet, multiple members of the U.S. Congress, uh, folks like David Barton, who's a kind of the movement's sort of favorite sort of fringe historian and has held pretty uh, important roles at various points in the Republican Party. And he's also the leader of uh, one of the leaders of an in- initiative called Project Blitz, which is an, a legislative initiative targeting state legislatures with um, identical bills intended to grade, dis, uh, degrade the separation of church and state. So the movement does have uh, many leaders. I also write about some of the leaders of the past, folks like Phyllis Schlafly, um, thinkers, theologians who uh, had an outsized influence in the movement, such as Rusas Rechduni and many others. We'll have more with investigative journalist Catherine Stewart, author of a new book called The Power Worshippers Inside the Dangerous Rise of Religious Nationalism, straight ahead. Hello out there, everybody. It's me, Tigger. T-I-double-G-R. That spells Tigger. And don't forget to remember to listen to Tom Sumner program on account of because he's so bouncy. <laughs> 
I'm Julie Lopez with Crime Stoppers. Have you ever wondered what to do if you have information about a crime or the whereabouts of a felony fugitive and you want the police to know but you need to remain anonymous? Well, here's what you can do. You can go to p3tips.com or download the mobile app. You can go to Crime Stoppers of Flint and Genesee County's Facebook page and click on the Leave an Anonymous Tip tab, or you can call 1-800-422-JAIL. All methods are anonymous, and if your help leads to a felony arrest, you may be eligible for a cash reward. Remember, your voice matters. A social distancing tip. Putting distance between yourself and others is critical to slowing the spread of coronavirus. So here are ways to stay in contact without the physical contact part. Call, send a text, set up a video conference, post on social media, dedicate a song on the radio. If you have symptoms of fever, dry cough, and shortness of breath, call your health care provider before going to their office. For more info, visit coronavirus.gov. Let's all do our part, because we're all hashtag alone together. Brought to you by the America, your children have an amazing superpower. They can help save lives by not having playdates. That's right. By replacing get-togethers with virtual playdates and video chats, they can help slow the evil spread of germs. And if your superheroes do go outside, make sure they continue their superhero wing by staying six feet away from others to protect everyone in America land. Find out more at coronavirus.gov. A message from the CDC and the Ad Council. East Village Magazine is the monthly neighborhood magazine read all over Flint. With support from grants, donations, and advertisers, East Village Magazine's talented local writers give you an in-depth look at local news, issues, and people that make Flint, Flint. Copies of East Village Magazine are available at many of your favorite shops and restaurants around Flint or online at eastvillagemagazine.org. East Village Magazine, community-focused and community-supported. Your calls matter. Join me and Andrea weekdays from 9 to 10 a.m. Eastern to talk about whatever you want to talk about. The Tom Sumner Program has open phone lines Monday through Friday to hear from you. How's 2020 working out for you so far? How about those damn roads? Call in live at 810-339-8255. It's all about you. We'll be streaming live at TomSumnerProgram.com and simulcast on WFOV 92.1 FM in Flint. Foil hats are optional. Lady of the house, please. You thought you had every Elvis record made, but wait, Elvis sings again, this time from heaven. That's right, Elvis from heaven. Yes, hear Elvis from Graceland in the Sky. Soul-stirring versions of epic proportions. You'll hear Elvis crooning, Early Gate Rock, all dug up, lying in the chapel, and 11 others. This record also includes a special Elvis message. Hello, ladies and gentlemen. I'm Elvis Presley. Order before midnight tonight and receive this Elvis Presley commemorative casket keychain. Open it up. Yes. The king inside. A must for any Elvis fan. Order yours today. To order your Elvis from Heaven, send $9.95 in checker money order to Elvis from Heaven, P.O. Box 714, Cleo, Michigan, 44487. Or save COD charges and phone 555-5554. Use Master Charge or Visa, Canadian residence, add $3. Technical assistance for the Tom Sumner program is provided by Swiftlet Technology. Engineering and IT services at swiftland.technology.
This is Congressman Dan Kildee, and you're listening to the Tom Sumner Program. We'll have more with investigative journalist Catherine Stewart, author of a new book called The Power Worshippers Inside the Dangerous Rise of Religious Nationalism, straight ahead. There's a huge divide in this country, and and some people think it's right-left. Some people think it's uh, based on uh, income and wealth, wealth inequality. Um, There are certainly culture wars going on over issues like uh, abortion and uh, gun control. Um, What... Are the money interests that that people are concerned about that that control government through campaign donations and lobbying activities and and other things um, are those things different than the power that the um, religious nationalists are seeking? This is a really important question. Um, what's the relationship between um, the money interests and religious nationalism? Um, religious nationalism is unabashedly identified with uh, power and wealth. Um, the movement has come to depend critically in recent years on the wealth of a growing subset of America's plutocratic class. And these folks are as committed to low taxation and minimally regulated economy uh, as much as they are committed to these right-wing positions and the so-called culture wars. If you look at, you know, this is another way you can see that this is not just a movement about uh, the culture wars, about abortion, same-sex marriage. When they're communicating to one another, then this, these are, I'm sorry, when they're communicating to congregants and the rank and file, it's always abortion and, you know, d- defense of the traditional family. But when they're communicating to political leaders, when they're communicating to one another, when they're communicating especially to the funders, they're embracing things like what they call biblical economics, the idea that the Bible says uh, is against uh, uh, environmental regulation, regulation of industry, the Bible favors minimum taxation. I mean, this sounds kind of absurd, but this is something that they talk about quite openly when they are um, actually, you know, in the forms that they share. So I'll just give you one example. Um, Ralph Dollinger, who I mentioned before, and who has this very influ- politically influential um, ministry network called Capital Ministries, says that progressive taxes are unbiblical. He wrote, he offers Bible study uh, guide, uh, texts that are available online. You can sort of look them up. One of them says, nowhere does God command the institutions of government or commerce to fully support those with genuine need. He said um, in another study guide um, toward a biblical understanding of lawmaking, he cites Peter 2, 18 to 21, Servants, be submissive to your masters in all respects, not only to those who are good and gentle, but also to those who are unreasonable. And he explains, what he draws from this, what this, what this, uh, this Bible passage, the economy of Rome at the time of Peter's writing was one of slave and master. 
The principle, however, of submitting to one's boss carries over to today. Think about that. Submitting to one's boss, not just, you know, having a job and, you know, participating in economic growth. And it's, I mean, it's, it's, it's kind of astonishing. Another uh, one of those leaders I mentioned earlier, David Barton, has also said that God opposes progressive income taxes, capital gains taxes, and a minimum wage laws. So the leaders of the movement have incredibly expansive positions on things like foreign policy, economic policy, domestic policy. And that shows that this is a broad political movement. In the 2016 election and and since during the uh during this uh, first term of uh, Donald Trump's presidency um there are so many people who have a difficult time reconciling how people who claim to be um christian can accept the behavior of um, a, a president that the Pope says is clearly not Christian. That's true. I know. It's incredible. I think, you know, for people on the outside, the alliance between the so-called values vote cohort and Trump remains baffling. I think some people think that it's just transactional. You know, they think that Trump will enact policies that are favorable to their interests or appoint judges that are going to appoint uh, judges that are going to vote in their positions that they want in the so-called culture wars. Or there are many who are sort of economic conservatives and they think that Trump Trump will just simply promote right-wing economic policies that are favorable uh, to them. But, you know, to those familiar with the political transformation of this large segment of white Christian conservatism over the past two decades is that it, it's really about power. It's not, it's, look, they have the sense that Trump is fighting for them. You know, they really don't want just a seat at the table. They want to replace America's constitutional republic with a state rooted in a particular understanding of their religion and to uh, rearrange the existing order. Um, if you look at people, and so for those folks, Trump is their ideal leader. I mean, people like Paula White, who's now a member of the Trump White House and special advisor to the Face and Opportunity Initiative, describes Trump as a king. She said, it, is, it takes God to raise up a king. Uh, folks like Franklin Graham has said, uh, I believe God, I'm paraphrasing here, he said something like, I believe God played a hand in the last, in this last, in the 2016 election. Other leaders like David Barton have called Trump God's guy or God's candidate. They really want a a more authoritarian form of power. And they actually compare him sometimes to kings like King Cyrus or King David. Um, So it's, it's, it's kind of astonishing that we're really, the thing about kings is that they don't have to follow the rules. They are the law. And um, there is something about um, Trump that understands this longing for the kind of hard hand of the despot. He sort of plays into this. 
the is the war not war that's the wrong word is the um the argument about separation of church and state over yes the argument is about that but it's also really about uh making a, a direct attack on democracy itself um the christian nationalist movement today doesn't believe in pluralism uh, doesn't respect pluralism or believe in um a modern secular democracy and I found this really clear when I went, for instance, to the Verona, Italy. I went to an organization uh, called the World Congress of Families. They hold it every year or so, and it's a gathering of the so-called global conservative movement. There were uh, a number of uh, American religious rights representatives there, and they were in discussion with leaders of um, the sort of global conservative movement in other countries. Russia plays an outsized interest, uh, 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 outsized role in this in this uh, alliance. Um, there were other representatives from folks like uh, from places like Spain or uh, or Poland. And one of the speakers stood up and said, "Please make liberal politicians fear you." Another one uh, stood up and declared war on. Um, liberal democracy. Um, others, uh, sometimes they couch it as a culture war in support or defense of the American family. I'm sorry, in defense of the traditional family. But when you really look at what they're after, it's replacing the idea of um, liberal democratic governance with uh, an alliance of faith-based ethno-nationalist states. Which which of the uh, of the two documents, the U.S. Constitution and the Bible, um, are best understood? Um, that's a good question. What do you mean by best I've understood, always, and what do you mean by whom? <laughs> I, well, I've I've always thought that um, that that the Constitution and the Bible have been misquoted and used to defend a variety of oppressive behaviors and it it strikes me that people really don't understand those documents very well and and i i guess i'm saying um is is this a matter of people not understanding the the constitution or misunderstanding um, the the teachings of the Bible, um, you know, when when did it become? When did the Bible become um, not so much a teaching tool as a guide for ruling? Yeah, well, you know, it, it, these are there are a couple of this question raises a number of interesting points, and I think it's worth noting that there's a whole movement of religious people who draw very different interpretations of the Bible and who think Christianity is about caring for the poor and undefended, not abandoning them, about affirming people's rights and not denying them, and about being open and tolerant, embracing a pluralistic world, and not seeing people as tribe or religious insider first, but seeing people as human beings first instead. Um, I think that 
Christianity in America is obviously extraordinarily diverse, as is probably every other religion. So the movement includes many evangelicals, but it's worth you know mentioning that it excludes many evangelicals too, um, many white evangelicals, and probably most black evangelicals. And um, the larger movement does include also representatives of a variety of both Protestant and non-Protestant religion. Um, and while it claims to represent an authentic form of religion, many progressive Christian leaders question whether it is authentically Christian in the first place. A lot of people would uh, draw the conclusion that there's uh, uh, a racial component to this, and, and you refer to that in your book as being um, more implicit than explicit. That's true. You know, at one of the conferences that I went to in 2018, I think it was a Road to Majority conference, Ralph Reed who's one of the leaders of uh, the one of the very influential right-wing policy groups, he stood up there and he said, they, meaning Democrats, are always talking about race, and he said they get it wrong. He said it wasn't whites that voted for Trump as much as evangelicals. He said, if you, and conservative Catholics, he said if you back the evangelical vote out of the election, Trump loses with whites. So he was correct that the election was very much about religion, but I believe he was papering over a fundamental connection between racism and conservative white evangelicalism. He ignores the way that form of religion on the ground uh, and racism tend to reinforce one another. For one thing, they're driving support for the culture wars um, that are promoting a political party that has made race-based gerrymandering and voter suppression a strategic imperative. But this basic reality of the ways in which white conservative evangelicalism and race, racism reinforce one another really stands in uncomfortable contradiction with the leader's goals of trying to expand Christian nationalism to people of color. As I describe in my book, uh, I go to events where uh, they're trying to gather together Latino pastors and black pastors to try to get them in on the culture wars, too. I mean, leaders of the movement can uh, see the demographic future of our country and voting habits, and they realize if they limit their, uh, you know, their voters are limited to white conservative evangelicals and, and Catholics, then they largely, they're really going to lose these elections. So they've made a very big effort to reach out to pastors of color, uh, conservative-leaning pastors of color, I should say, in, in, in effort to kind of gather some subsection of votes of their congregants. It's kind of a cynical move, in my view. In in the title of your book, the book is uh, The Power Worshippers, Inside the Dangerous Rise of Religious Nationalism. There are a lot of uh, Trump supporters and supporters of this movement that would think that there's nothing dangerous about this at all. Um, what do you think the dangers are? Well, I think the danger is, uh, you know, to our democracy itself, to our rights 
to um, our public order. I mean, think about it. Our, as you mentioned earlier, our country has never been more divided. And I think that a lot of that comes from the top. I mean, uh, at this year's March for Life in Washington, D.C., Trump said to the crowd, they are coming after me because I am fighting for you. I mean, he's basically declaring himself the representative of only one section of the American public. He is not even pretending to represent all Americans. He is not trying to unite us in any way. He said, you know, he sort of stoked this persecution narrative. He said, the far left left is actively working to erase our God-given rights. He said that Democrats want to, quote, ban religious believers from the public square. This is ridiculous. Nobody's trying to ban (laughs) believers from the public square. But stoking the persecution narrative is a way, it's like, this is what religious nationalisms do. They, they cast their political opponents, not just people with honest differences of opinion. They're, they cast their political opponents as, as the enemy, you know, the evil ones. Um, Bill Barr calls them, um, you know, organized, hell-bent on organized destruction. He identifies anyone who sort of opposes his agenda as sort of seculars who are committing an unrelenting assault on religion and traditional values. And though people who support pluralism or want to respect the separation of church and state are out, out there sort of ransacking everything that is holy and good. So this is what religious nationalisms around the world do. They rely heavily on a persecution narrative. The idea that the dominant national identity is under threat from an aggressive other. And uh, I, I don't, unfortunately, see this type of rhetoric diminishing in the Trump era. This is something that people have complained about ever since the Supreme Court ruled against prayer in school. And I remember uh, JFK, uh, well, I've seen video of JFK uh, in, in press conference settings uh, responding to that ruling by saying that that. Parents, you know, have a number of uh, options to address their concerns by praying more at home and attending their churches with more fidelity. Um, but we don't hear that kind of, of of talk anymore, and it does seem as though, like like prayer in school has been almost criminalized in, in the process of trying to be more politically correct or politically hmm. sensitive. Um, is That's interesting you say that. I, I, I have to disagree. Children have always been allowed to pray in school. Um, and what What's not supposed to happen at school uh, is that teachers are not allowed to direct children in sectarian prayer in public schools because public schools necessarily serve a diverse population. But Listen, I but I'm not sure that people the understand the uh, the intricacy of that. Um, uh, it, they feel like they're being. Pre- it, it, and it doesn't seem that hard to me to understand either. But there are people who believe that that there's actually a repression there. It's interesting. There are that's a sort of a line that's been promoted by the right. They talk about 
you know, prayer in schools as being the, the thing. Sometimes they say it's prayer in schools. Sometimes they say it's Roe versus Wade. But if you look at this, if you look at the kind of intellectual line of this kind of opposition to um, d- democracy and pluralism and equality, or what Rusas Rashjuni, who is like an incredibly influential theologian, called the heresy of democracy, the heresy of democracy, think about that. There's a much deeper, there are much deeper roots in our American uh, history of this kind of opposition. I mean, the opposition to public schools, to public education, goes back to the era following emancipation when pro-slavery theologians such as uh, Robert Louis Dabney, uh, who was an incredibly influential theologian, um, opposed the formation of public schools because he didn't think that white people should be taxed to offer education to black children. Um, uh, these folks decried pluralism. They, in some ways, are the founders of the sort of Christian nation myth. They had, they had this idea that um, America was founded as, as an authentically Christian nation with hierarchies that were rooted in the Bible, um, that uh, the, we were supposed to be having the Constitution was uh, ensuring freedom, not freedom from religion, but for religion, meaning that, you know, um, religion should be able to play a, a forceful role in American life. Um, they had a very particular understanding of religion. Um, and uh, let's, I, I want to read you a quote from one of these pro-slavery theologians that, you know, was defending slavery. He said, the parties in this conflict between abolition and slavery, they're, okay, on the one side, atheists, socialists, communists, Red Republicans, Jacobins. Jacobins referring, of course, to the French Revolution and the principles of the Enlightenment. He said, on the one side, and freedom of order, and friends of order and regulated freedom on the other. So they're positing this conflict as one between the orderly folk who believe in biblical literalism and absolute submission to authority, the idea that hierarchies are ordained in the Bible, and uh, equal rights for all is, is, is hooey. <laughs> That's one side. And then on the other side, you have us, you know, the regulate, you know, promoters of regulated freedom and order and a sort of biblical society. And so you see this kind of divide still taking place today. Now, of course, the role of slavery has uh, really been taken out of the picture. But still today, the leaders of the Christian nationalist movement talk about hierarchies as biblically ordained, certainly um, of men over women. And um, uh, certainly, of course, of um, as, as Ralph Dollinger put it, you know, Um, employers over their employees. We'll have more with investigative journalist Catherine Stewart, author of a new book called The Power Worshippers Inside the Dangerous Rise of Religious Nationalism, straight ahead. TomSumnerProgram.com Tom Sumner Program.com 
Hi, this is Joe By from the Blue Hawaiians, and you're listening to the Tom Sumner Program. Hi, this is Tom from the Tom Sumner Program. If you like talk radio that makes you think without telling you what to think, check out our whole show weekdays from 9 a.m. to noon Eastern at TomSumnerProgram.com. Selected segments are also available on this and other radio stations, but you can hear us anytime. Daily editions of the Tom Sumner Program repeat online all day and night on the show's website. Past shows can be found in the website archives. My long-format interviews with New York Times best-selling author photographers and writers from National Geographic, as well as artists, musicians, candidates, and elected officials are made possible by listeners like you. Support the Tom Sumner Program and Civilized Talk Radio. Visit our website at TomSumnerProgram.com and become a member. You can make a one-time gift or become a sustaining patron by taking the link to the Tom Sumner Program Patreon page. Thanks for listening and thanks for your support. Discoveries. They happen when we least expect them in places we thought we knew. And discoveries have a way of teaching us a little more about ourselves along the way. Welcome to Flint and Genesee County, where up north meets down south. Home to Michigan's largest county park system and a vibrant culture. A place filled with discoveries we've yet to make. Throughout acres of beautiful lakes, wetlands, and woods, and in the diverse city beyond where the uplifting melodies of gospel choirs fill the air, where the work of renowned artists color the galleries and museums, where the fresh fruits and vegetables at the downtown farmer's market awaken our senses, and where the cultural center and planetarium broaden our view of the world. Let's spend a few days enjoying the wonders of Flint and Genesee County, where the joy of discovery is pure Michigan. Your trip begins at michigan.org. Thank you, and thank you all for tuning in. You know, we know that tough times don't last, but tough people do. We've been through a lot here in Michigan. We've been through crisis before, where the country needed their countrymen and countrywomen to pitch in collectively to get through a crisis and rise to the occasion. Michigan once was the arsenal of democracy to win World War II. We need that same spirit now. We're working around the clock with doctors and hospitals and first responders to stop the spread and to save lives. But we need your help too. The state has launched a new volunteer website at www.michigan.gov forward slash fight COVID-19 where trained medical professionals can register to serve their fellow Michiganders by assisting hospitals in fighting COVID-19. State residents can also use the site to find out how they can help in their local communities by giving blood or donating resources or needed medical supplies. Whether you're a medical professional looking to volunteer or you're someone who can give blood or donate to your local food bank, everyone can help out. To get through this, we must all do our part. Stay home, stay safe and save lives. Technical assistance for the Tom Sumner program is provided by Swiftlet Technology, engineering and IT services at swiftlet.technology. I know of a place where you never get harmed, a man. 
magical place with magical charms indoors 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 take it away hey this is first ward city councilman eric mays and you're listening to the tom sumner program We'll have more with investigative journalist Catherine Stewart, author of a new book called The Power Worshippers Inside the Dangerous Rise of Religious Nationalism, straight ahead. Has this movement been an evolution over time, or is it a fairly recently trending phenomenon? You're absolutely right. It is an evolution over time. Um, This ideology that has promoted the values of biblical literalism and set itself in opposition to religious liberalism and political literal, I'm sorry, um, this ideology promoted the values of biblical literalism (laughs) and set itself in opposition to religious liberalism um, has been around for a long time. But what varies with this type of ideology over time is the alignment with political power What's distinctive about the current phase of this movement is the near-perfect alignment of this form of religious nationalism with a single political party. So um, this cohort uh, was, you know, even a couple of decades ago, considered more fringe. Think about it. Look, when Roe versus Wade was passed, remember, most Republicans supported it. Um, Betty Ford called it a great, great decision. Think about uh, Barry Goldwater, that great conservative hero. He supported uh, uh, liberalized abortion laws early in his career, and his wife Peggy was a co-founder of Planned Parenthood in Arizona. I mean, things looked very different uh, even a few decades ago. There was a kind of pro-choice Republican movement that persisted up into the 90s. But over time, leaders of the movement kind of, figured out that they could use certain culture war issues to unite and coalesce these disparate strands of the movement around a much more tight core. And so they purged the Republican Party of any pro-choice voices, um, and they united the, the movement around, you know, well, and interesting, culture war issues. And, and interestingly, it seems like the uh, Republicans and Democrats, as we know them, are on the opposite sides of where you think they would be on that issue. You would expect the, the Republicans to be pro-choice and, uh, and, and Democrats to be pro-life um, based on their, their core principles. Um, it's interesting. I mean, uh, uh, the, uh, I'm not sure you would think that Democrats would... Be, I'm not sure what you mean by pro-life. Um, I think they would uh, be more apt to be the group advocating for an unborn child. Well, and and I think there was cohort of the Repub- of the Democratic Party you're talking about. It's true that in the previous era, abortion was primarily seen as a Catholic issue. It was often put in the context of a, 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 a of a larger ethos of care for the poor and undefended. But remember, I mean, I think that for many Democrats, um, a pro-choice position, the idea that um, a, a fetus, 
particularly in its, uh, the earliest weeks of development or a, a zygote is not the moral equivalent of a born child, is not in a position that would be considered uncomfortable for, for many Democrats. Um, but um, even Catholics, uh, even, while Catholic ideology was um, primarily uh, pro, was, was pro, pro-life, anti-abortion, there were many Catholics who um, supported, uh, based on lived experience, some form of, um, expressed some form of comfort, you know, individual Catholics that expressed some form of comfort with some form of uh, liberalization of abortion laws. And, so and birth control. And birth control, for sure. But unfortunately, this is so frustrating for me, Catherine, because this is a, a, a fascinating conversation, but we're running out of time. Mm-hmm. And I always oh. want to make sure that guests have an opportunity to let listeners know where they can find out more. First, I'll remind people the new book that comes out this month from uh, my guest, Catherine uh, Stewart, is The Power Worshippers Inside the Dangerous Ride of Religious Nationalism. But, um, Catherine, you've done a a number of other things, op-eds for the New York Times, uh, the uh, other book, The Good News Club, and and other writing that you've done. Do you have a website? Yes, I do. Thank you. It's CatherineStewart.me, and uh, you can follow me on Twitter at Stewart. There are two S's there. And, of course, uh, my book, The Power Worshippers, is available everywhere books are for sale. Well, Catherine, thank you so much for uh, spending this time and talking about this, uh, um, this, this new book. I appreciate it. Really a great conversation, Tom. Thank you so much. All right. And with that, we'll have more of the Tom Sumner program straight ahead. Ladies and gentlemen, in Philip Rapp's creation, The Bickersons. What's what's the matter? All right, all right. Blanche, Blanche. I'm putting a ribbon in my hair. Where are you going? I'm not going anywhere. I just thought I'd like to look nice this morning. Why? I knew you'd forget. You don't even know what day this is. I do, too. It's rent day. It is not. Today happens to be our wedding anniversary. Well, I knew it was a sad occasion of some kind. What kind of a remark is that? That's supposed to be funny. No, it isn't supposed to be funny, Blanche. I'm just groggy, that's all. I'm sorry. I knew you'd forget. I didn't forget it. So why didn't you say something? Blanche, I just opened my eyes. You forgot it. I tell you, I didn't forget it. But even if I did, you'd remind me of it. Happy anniversary. Happy anniversary. Is that all? No plans? We've been married eight years. Don't you want to do something? No, it's too late to do anything. It's sad about you. How you suffer. I didn't get such a bargain, you know. Okay, okay. There's better fish in the ocean than the one I caught. There's better bait, too. I'm serious. Okay, I'm sorry. You hack away at me in the morning and I'm so exhausted, I don't know what I'm saying. You wouldn't be so exhausted if you went to bed at a reasonable hour. I had to work overtime. 
time. Pour me some coffee. Get paid? I'll get paid. What time did you get home? 12.30. If you got home at 12.30, why were you so long getting into bed? I know for a fact you didn't come to bed until almost 2. I was in the kitchen putting the stuff away. What stuff? What's the matter, Blanche? You told me to bring stuff home for the party tonight. You invited a lot of your crumb friends and you told me to bring stuff, so I brought stuff. Did you bring the potatoes for the potato salad? I brought potatoes. Did you pair them? I paired them. All of them? All except one. He had a big knob on top and I couldn't find the meat for him. I meant... I know what you meant, Blanche. I even boiled them last night. Where are my pants? Who stole my pants? Nobody stole your pants. I just looked in the wastebasket and they're not there. My shoes are missing from the sink. Don't be silly, John. Your pants are on a hanger in the closet and your shoes are in the shoe rack. How'd they get there? I put them there. Well, I wish you'd quit throwing my things around like that. (laughs) Gotta get them or I'll be late. You won't be late. Here are your pants. Thanks. Blanche, these aren't my pants. They're not? Then whose pants are they? That's a good question, only I should be asking. Don't be so snobby. They were baggy, so I pressed them. Baggy? Took me an hour to find the right crease. Be careful you don't wrinkle them now. What's the difference? I like my pants to look lived in. You're dragging the tops on the floor. Hold your trouser leg with your left hand, then step in with your right foot. Blanche, I've been putting on my own pants for over 40 years, and I don't need you to be the foreman of it. Hand me my Which one? It doesn't matter. I want to use it for a belt. My suspenders are broken. Why don't you wear your belt? I'm using it to keep the soles from falling off my shoes. John Fitterson, you know you're just... I know it. I know I haven't got a belt. Where's my shirt? Where did you hide my shirt? I didn't hide it anywhere. Well, where is it? I draped it around the canary's cage so he could sleep. Is my shirt the only rag you could find to cover the bird's cage with? Hasn't hurt anything, has it? No, but I don't like the way that bird pokes into my pockets. Every time I take a cigarette out, I'm smoking bird seed. Why do you have to cover the cage anyway? The canary is sensitive to light. Well, get him a pair of sunglasses. Leave my shirt alone. No bird's going to sleep later than I do. Ah, shut up. John, why must you be so mean on our anniversary? Blanche, I'm not mean. I'm worried. Business is bad. My job is hanging by a thread. You never should have quit your other job. You made me quit. You said it wasn't dignified selling bowling balls. You were embarrassed to answer when people asked you what your husband sold. Well, it sounded like it was trying to start a fight. That's no problem for you. I gotta go. Here, and don't forget your samples. I won't forget. This darn vacuum cleaner gets heavier every day. Straighten this hose around my neck, will you, Blanche? There, there. Now, got everything? I think so. No, wait a minute. You got any money? Well, there's 50 cents in the sugar bowl. 50 cents? You can bring me the change when you come home. Now listen, Blanche, something's got to be done about this. I can't go down to work like a pauper every day. A man's got to have a couple dollars in his pocket. Now don't yell at me. I don't mind going with torn clothes and holes in my socks, but I'm not going to suffer through those lunches anymore. What's the matter with your lunches? You ought to know. You pack them for me. I'm just getting sick of carrying my lunch to work in a paper sack. Why can't I go to the restaurant like the other fellas? John, what are you talking about? I haven't fixed your lunch for two years. Oh, Blanche, every morning of my life I find my lunch wrapped in brown paper on the side of the sink. John, that's the garbage. Goodbye, Blanche. Goodbye, dear. Happy anniversary. Sumner,
Tom Sumner Program.com You pilots, get off of my lawn! We're trying to do a radio show down here! It's a Tom Sumner program, don't you know? Go on! Go on, get out of here! 